Depending on how you like to count such things, Jerusalem has been attacked around 50 times in the last 3,000 years. It has changed hands some 44 times, been besieged 23 times, and utterly destroyed at least twice. The Jews themselves have been exiled from all or parts of the city on several occasions, most recently by the Jordanians in 1948, following Israel's War of Independence. The Jordanians wrecked the Jewish quarter of the old city and repopulated it with Palestinian refugees from Israel. The most recent capture was from the Israelis in the third day of the Six-Day War, June 7, 1967. That famous phrase, Har Habayit Be'adenu, the Temple Mount is ours. But here's the question, and think about it for a minute before you answer, because the answer might say a lot about where you stand politically. How would you describe what happened on June 7th? Was Jerusalem captured? Or was it, as many Israelis say, liberated? Palestinians say it was seized or illegally occupied. Or how about something more centrist, just simply taken? But given the Jewish people's 3,000-year history there, was it actually retaken from those who had taken it before, like the Jordanians in 1948? The international community says it's illegal, but Israel says it's not. After all, they took it from the Jordanians, who themselves were illegal occupiers. So before we even get into anything else, just how you describe Jerusalem is fraught with complexity. It turns out that even word choices are weighted with meaning and political signaling. No matter which term we use, someone will object that it's not doing justice to the events of 1967 or to the rights of the various people who claim ownership over the city, or that it suggests a misreading of history, and on and on. Still, we have to talk about Jerusalem. Every war has its defining battle, and for the Six-Day War, that became Jerusalem. Before the war, Israel had no plans to take the eastern half of the city. The western half already belonged to Israel. Even once the war began, its leaders still hesitated. It was only after a nasty fight around the old city and an imminent ceasefire that Moshe Dayan, the minister of defense, finally gave the army to order to move, the order to move in. All of a sudden, Israel found itself unexpectedly in possession of the great holy city, with no plan for what to do next. So now what? There's a lot we can say about Jerusalem at this moment, and we're going to talk about three things. The Western Wall, the Temple Mount, and Annexation. And I realize that I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor here. But in these three actions, we can see a microcosm of the bigger picture of the post-war situation. The decisions, confusions, hesitations, and contradictions that came with Israel's new occupation of Arab territory and the 1.2 million Palestinians living in those lands. Talking about Jerusalem in the hours and days following the Six-Day War, June of 1967, I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Last episode, we talked about some of the impacts of the Six-Day War on the attitudes of Israelis and Jews, especially a new relationship with ideas around land, power, and God, as articulated by one of my favorite scholars, Rabbi Danielle Hartman of the Shalom Hartman Institute. And so it makes sense to turn to Jerusalem's old city as our starting point. The city serves as a focal point for such things. 
as the seat, as it were, of God's divine presence on earth, a piece of land hotly contested and revered, and therefore important with respect to who holds power over it. It also makes sense to start with Jerusalem because the impact of the Six-Day War began to be felt there immediately. When we look at what happened in Jerusalem following the war, we can see the various kinds of narratives that spawned in the wake of Israel's victory and the Arabs' humiliating defeat. On the one hand, we can find evidence for the narrative of Israel as ruthless conqueror, repurposing land irrespective of and detrimental to the Palestinians living there. And yet we also encounter events that defy that narrative, in which Israel did not necessarily act in its own interest, and which instead present a more nuanced and complex story about Israel's occupation of these territories. In the meantime, Israel captured, or seized, or taken, or retaken, or liberated, legally or illegally, or somewhere in between, Israel captured Jerusalem on June 7, 1967. On June 10th, a ceasefire ended the Six-Day War, and that same day, Israel's military commanders in Jerusalem realized they had a big problem. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were heading to the Old City to touch the stones of the Western Wall, the physical manifestation of their victory, the first time in 2,000 years the wall had been in Jewish hands. What had been a war zone yesterday was about to be ground zero for civilians in a few days' time. The problem was that the Western Wall back then was a cramped, dingy, very narrow alleyway smooshed up against a small neighborhood known as the Mugrabi Quarter. It couldn't hold more than a few dozen people at a time. The Mugrabi Quarter, as weakly squalid and run down as the Wall's alleyway, was home to 135 Arab families. They had been housed there as refugees from the 1948 war. Next door was the Jewish Quarter that had been largely destroyed, its Jews either killed or forced out by the Jordanians. The Jordanians then resettled more Palestinians in any buildings that survived, including synagogues that were turned into apartments. It's unclear who exactly gave the next orders about the Mugrabi Quarter. Several people have taken credit, or if you prefer, blame. Whoever did it, did it without official approval from the government. The decision was made to evacuate the 135 Arab families and raise the quarter to clear a wide open plaza in front of the Western Wall for people to gather, the same plaza that exists today. Over a period of two days, Israeli bulldozers swept in, demolishing houses against the refusal of the Arab residents to leave. In one incident, walls of a house collapsed on the family that the army didn't realize were still inside, and an elderly woman died after being rushed to the hospital. The Israeli commander of the operation later said that, quote, The order to evacuate the neighborhood was one of the hardest in my life. When you order fire in battle, you're an automaton. Here you had to give an order, knowing that you were likely to hurt innocent people. End quote. By the time Prime Minister Levi Eshkol found out about the operation and ordered it stopped, it was too late. A year later, Israel would offer compensation to the families. Forty of those families wrote to the Israeli mayor of Jerusalem and the local Arab officials to thank them for resettling the residents in better housing in East Jerusalem and ensuring that they had received the proper humanitarian care. But many of the other residents refused to accept any compensation, on the grounds that doing so would legitimize Israel's seizure of their homes. The question is, what are we to make of this event? So what are we to make of this event? 
The Israeli-American historian Daniel Gordis writes that the raising of the Mugrabi quarter is, quote, a reflection of a wider phenomenon of quickly cobbled together policies and hastily made decisions, some of which would come to shape Israel for decades to come. The removal of Mugrabi on June 10th unfolded without a national conversation about what to do with the towns and neighborhoods that Israel had just captured, end quote. Indeed, there seemed to be little rhyme or reason in the immediate aftermath. In between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, along the strategic main road linking the cities, three Palestinian villages were destroyed by Israeli forces, the Palestinians forced out and not allowed to return. And yet a few miles up the road, in the town of Kalkila, where Israeli forces destroyed more than half the homes and kicked out the residents, Moshe Dayan, the Minister of Defense, later ordered the homes rebuilt, and the Palestinians either allowed back or given compensation. The reason seemed to be one of security necessity. The three villages posed a threat to the road, whereas Kalkilia did not. These kinds of security justifications would play a major role in Israel's actions in the territories. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gornberg writes that, quote, The raising of the Mugrabi quarter took place in a twilight time, between war and the first formal government discussions of post-war policy. It fit a wartime pattern, actions of great consequence, taken by Diane or those beneath him, without authorization, improvised to fit the moment's demands as they saw them, born on euphoria. Yet in this case, no battle had been fought. The military exploited its rule of occupied territory to the clear benefit of Israeli citizens over the occupied population. End quote. What we're seeing here is a term that's going to become ubiquitous. The creation of what are called facts on the ground. It's the Israeli version of the classic workplace axiom, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Decisions will be made to build something here or set forth a policy there. By the time it trickles up to the decision-making level of government, it will be too difficult to effectively change, and Israel will be stuck with whatever that decision is. It becomes a slick way for various actors to get what they want without, as Daniel Gordis writes, much of a national discussion about whether Israel should be going in this direction. As Gershom Gornberg writes, what happened with the Mugrabi quarter set a precedent. Quote, Top officers and officials joined with private citizens, acting not in line with government policy, but in order to set it. End quote. Still, when it comes to Jerusalem, not every policy was decided necessarily to the benefit of Israelis over the Arabs. As the war ended, Moshe Dayan made another fateful decision with lasting consequences. Israel cleared the Muslim neighborhood in front of the Western Wall to maximize uninhibited Jewish access to their holy place. But what about the Temple Mount on top of the Western Wall? Muslims consider it their third holiest site, spot of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Historically though, it's Judaism's holiest place, the site of the ancient temple first built by King Solomon. The story goes that in the hours after the Temple Mount was taken by Israel, the IDF's chief rabbi, Shlomo Gorin, asked for dynamite to blow up the Dome of the Rock to clear space to build what would become the third Jewish temple. He was flatly rejected. Israel didn't want to start a holy war with the Islamic world by seizing the Muslim holy places, nor did they want a repeat of 1948 with hundreds of thousands of Arab refugees. 
So Minister of Defense Moshe Dayan, again without government discussion or decision, made his own call. He decided that while Israel would maintain overall supervision over the Temple Mount, management would stay with the Jordanian Muslim authorities, known as the Waqaf. That is, Muslims would enjoy sole religious rights over the Temple Mount, which is quite an irony. In the Jewish state, a democracy with freedom of worship for all its citizens, there's only one religion prohibited from praying at its holiest site, and that is Judaism. It's known today as the status quo agreement. Only Muslims can pray, Jews cannot, and any non-Muslim visit to the Temple Mount is tightly controlled. As the Israeli journalist David Horowitz writes, Israel, quote, having defeated its enemies in a war foisted upon it and liberated the most sacred place in its religious heritage, promptly relinquished its religious rights there to the representatives of its vanquished enemies, end quote. The effect was profound because it opened the door to a deep and lasting big lie that has furthered conflict in the region for decades. And it goes like this. Muslims looked at Moshe Dayan's compromise and said, well, wait a second. If this really was the holiest Jewish site, there's no way that the Jews would give it up, and especially not to the people they just fought a war with. The only reason they would do that would be because they don't care about this spot. And the reason they don't care about this spot is because they know there's no Jewish connection here. In fact, the entire claim of a Jewish presence in Jerusalem going back thousands of years is a lie. And so this spot is ours. Any Jewish or Israeli attempt to access it or impose any decision on it is therefore an attack on Islam and must be met with violent resistance. That's the big lie. As David Horowitz writes, quote, Israel's restraint, its religious real politic, has come to be regarded as proof of our illegitimacy and of our duplicity. We were not the returning liberators, we were interlopers, who could and would be resisted until we returned to whence we ostensibly came, end quote. And so ever since 1967, Arab and Palestinian leaders have used the Temple Mount as a rallying cry to amp up their followers against Israel. The idea that the Jews gave up their right to pray there because they have no historic or religious connection to Jerusalem has been an insidious conspiracy cynically exploited to perpetrate and excuse violence. A few years ago, Arab gunmen murdered several Arabs at the Temple Mount, and in response, Israel tried to install metal detectors to better protect the site, and they were met with riots. Even now, an Israeli government official who dares to visit the Temple Mount sparks violence. Even an effort to discuss and dialogue with the Waqaf, the Muslim authorities, is met with fierce resistance and calls to defend the Al-Aqsa Mosque from the Jews. Pay attention to the headlines, and you'll see this over and over again. Just recently, in February 2023, the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, declared, quote, We alone have the religious, historical, and legal right to al-Barak wall, end quote by which he means the Western Wall. Perhaps Moshe Dayan's decision was still a good one, because it prevented a Middle Eastern holy war against Israel, and was anyway a disruption to history in which the conqueror tears down the holy sites of the vanquished. Well, perhaps it was a bad decision, allowing a false narrative to stoke paranoia on the Muslim side and grievance and distrust on the Jewish. Either way, Israel learned from this a lesson that they never forgot, another cliché, no good deed goes unpunished.
Jerusalem was both a dilemma and a paradox, an intensely national symbol and an administrative headache. The Western Israeli side was very different than the Eastern Arab side and almost nothing was connected. Electricity, water, transportation, taxes, policies, other city services. There was an imperative for the newly liberated city to fulfill its sacred, religious, historical, and national purpose as the reunified capital of the Jewish people. But Jerusalem was also a concern for half the world's population, Christians and Muslims. And of course, half the city was Arab. All of this fell into the lap of Teddy Kolek, the larger-than-life mayor of Jerusalem, an international bon vivant whose enormous enthusiasm, vision, bullying, and patience and grandiosity is inspirational, controversial, and frankly exactly what you want in a big city mayor who oversees, you know, the throne of God. The quote you see everywhere about him is that he was Jerusalem's greatest builder since the ancient Roman king Herod. Which is probably true, but also... The pedestrian crossing signal on Karen Hayesod Street, the one near the YMCA turnoff by the supermarket, yeah, the timing is way off, and you have to stand there forever, even though no cars are coming. In case anyone from the municipality is listening, I'm just saying the apple has fallen far from the tree right at that spot. Anyway, depending on who you ask, Teddy Kolek was either sincerely and deeply committed to Arab-Jewish coexistence, or he was just cynically mindful that the whole world was watching. The historian Tom Segev writes that, quote, Kolik would have been glad to see the city empty of Arabs. Had he been able to, he would have acted to remove them. As a realist, he knew that this was not possible. He saw unified Jerusalem as a test of Jews and Arabs' ability to live together, end quote. Yet as right-wing critics often considered him too supportive of the city's Arab community, and he advocated for religious moderation, peaceful coexistence, and a city that wouldn't be divided by boundaries between peoples. But the city was divided, and the whole world was watching, and every single move was subject to the hair-trigger sensitivities of all those who considered every square inch sacred territory. Tom Segev points out to the bigger questions. Quote, Would the residents of East Jerusalem be made Israeli citizens, entitled to vote and run for the Knesset, or would they be mere residents? The answer was not obvious. End quote. Would the Jews in the western half, who had been forced after 1948 to flee from the eastern half, would they be allowed to reclaim their property? The answer was generally yes. Would the Arabs now in the east, who had been forced after 1948 to flee from the west, also be allowed to reclaim their property? In most cases, no. Israel may have wanted coexistence, but they weren't going to re relinquish any more inches of the city than they absolutely had to. And so on June 27th, just a couple weeks after the war, and a week after Moshe Dayan's compromise over the Temple Mount, Israel annexed East Jerusalem. That is, Israel made East Jerusalem officially part of the state of Israel. Technically, the government claimed otherwise, insisting that what they did was extend the municipal boundaries of West Jerusalem to now wrap around East Jerusalem in order to provide city services and the like, which was true. But the Israeli Supreme Court later ruled that this anyway amounted to annexation. And in 1980, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, made it official. To whatever extent Israel was willing to give up its newly acquired territories in exchange for peace, which we'll get into, Jerusalem was considered the indivisibly Jewish city. As Menachem Begin argued, you can't annex what you already have the right to own. Israel immediately began rebuilding the Jewish quarter of the old city, 
and city services started slowly migrating into the Arab eastern half. The city was declared permanently reunified under Israel. Now, was all this against international law? Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. International law says you can't do what Israel did, conquer a territory that wasn't yours and then declare it to be a part of your country. But a lot of people have asked over the years, okay, but then who did it belong to? Since 1948, East Jerusalem had been in the hands of the Jordanians, who had conquered it, raised the Jewish places, and then themselves annexed the territory into Jordan in contravention of international law. Before that, it had been intended by the United Nations to be an international city belonging to no one, and it was in the hands of the British as a temporary colony. The British had taken it from the Ottoman Empire, which didn't exist anymore. So who exactly did Israel seize the city from, and who exactly were they supposed to give it back to? Remember, there was no Palestinian state, and never had been. Either way, the historian Tom Segev writes that by the summer of 1967, quote, Israel perceived the occupation as a remarkable success story, and increasingly Jerusalem was seen as a laboratory of Jewish-Arab coexistence, end quote. East Jerusalem's Arabs were given civil status, city services were extended everywhere, citywide improvement projects were implemented everywhere, even the education system was in many places unified. And for the first few months, all seemed to be going quite well. Jews and Arabs were coexisting without fighting. But, writes Segev, quote, coexistence was a false perception or an optical illusion, not only because the Arabs opposed the occupation, but also because most Israelis did not want them there, end quote. So pretty soon there was resistance to the occupation. At first it was a series of strikes in the schools, businesses, and public transportation workers. But then in September of 67, a bomb went off in a hotel, injuring several the trial of two young Arab men revealed the underlying tension between Jews, Arabs, the police, and the Jewish and Muslim authorities. This was followed by more organized violence and acts of terrorism. Tom Segev writes that, quote, The uprising and terrorist activities did not bring down Israeli rule, but they demonstrated that East Jerusalem was under occupation and that its residents were unwilling to live in Israel, even though their legal status gave them various advantages over the residents of the West Bank and Gaza, end quote. Terrorism and violence were from then on facets of life in the sacred city. And so we find ourselves, as we often do, mired in nuance and complexity that resists easy moral, political, and security decisions, and certainly resists the absolutist yet comforting narratives of each side. What we see is the beginning of the messy post-67 process, in which the Israeli government tried to figure out a path forward, while external forces pushed and pulled in every different direction. Jerusalem set the stage. The muddled decision-making, the facts on the ground, the attempts to compromise, the efforts to rebuild without antagonizing the Arabs, the meeting of the notions of land, power, and God. Besides Jerusalem, there are four more territories to consider, and within them, 1.2 million Palestinians over whose lives Israel now has control. It needs to be said, as I occasionally remind you, that the purpose of this podcast is to scratch the surface and then go a little deeper. 
Summaries necessarily leave out lots of fascinating details. We could write an entire season about the impact of the Six-Day War just on Jerusalem and all the particulars and moral questions and lasting effects that came with it. I know I'm leaving good stuff out, but this podcast is, as always, intended to be a starting point. A little bit of events, a little bit of personalities, a little bit of exploring what it all means, a little bit of the big picture, hopefully with some decent storytelling. So for those of you just joining us for the first time this season, welcome aboard. Next episode, we'll look beyond the particulars of Jerusalem into what the Israeli government was thinking about what to do with all this new territory. Give it back, keep it, slice it up. What is vital to Israel's security? What is essential for the Jewish people? What is rightfully better off back with the Arabs? We're at the beginning of what we call the occupation with a capital O. As always, you can find me at jewidontknow.com and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. We heat throat. See you later.